The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 66 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, relationship therapist Rebecca Wong. The Popscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations with kick-ass therapists and instigators of change. We examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and within the world around us. If you're like many modern women, you've learned to swallow what you need. Maybe you don't even know what you need. Maybe it oozes out of you sideways in the form of anxiety. In this episode, Elizabeth, or Biz, Kush, joins me to explore our relationships with anxiety and discomfort, and how to tune into what you need even when it's buried below the surface. Biz is a trauma therapist in Annapolis, Maryland, where she incorporates mindfulness and meditation into her psychotherapy work, her blogs, and it's also the focus of her aptly named Woman Warriors podcast. We explore what drives anxiety to show up so loudly. As women, we have a tendency to set aside our own needs in service of others. In doing so, perhaps we bypass an opportunity to know who we truly are. Biz shares how mindfulness and body experiences play into healing, and why slowing down is a necessary step in rebuilding a relationship with your anxiety and regaining your power. Dive in with us and journey from feeling lost or unseen to uncovering your wants, needs, and desires. Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm here today with my dear friend, Biz, or Elizabeth Cush. Hi, Biz. Hey, how are you, Rebecca? I'm good. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. We've had a few false takes. So this conversation has been waiting to happen for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's funny because today I was like, I checked my email right before because I'm like, oh, is something going to happen that we can't do it today? Like, yeah, so here we are. Here we are. It's so good. (laughs) And, you know, you've just launched a podcast, I have. I have. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? I kind of feel like this is perfectly timed, like you stepping into this space in your life. Yeah. So the podcast is called Woman Warriors. So it sounds like warriors, but it's warriors, like women who worry. And the focus of the podcast is helping women. The tagline is call a truce with their anxiety. So what I have learned in my journey with anxiety myself is that And as a counselor who's working with women with anxiety. Exactly. And as a therapist who does this, yes, I recognize how like the go-to strategy typically with anxiety is like push it away, ignore it, do whatever I can to distract myself. If I can just be busy enough or whatever, unthinking enough, maybe I can make it go away. But that doesn't typically happen. Uh No, it doesn't, does it? (laughs) It tends to kind of like keep knocking. Keep knocking, shouting sometimes, banging on the door, leading to panic attacks, anxiety attacks, things like that. So calling a truce, allowing it to be there and say, okay, can I live with this instead of fight against it? And maybe that's a better strategy. 
You know, I know I've been doing a bit of a series on highly sensitive people. And one of the defining factors of someone who's really sensitive is that they tend to process things in loops, like they keep going through the process. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the differences with someone who's really anxious is that they tend to ruminate on things. Yes. Can we talk about that for a minute? Can we really make that distinction more clear? Yeah. And so the ruminating piece to me is that, say... For example, you made a mistake at work and you're thinking about it and you're like, oh, well, I could have done that differently. Well, but then later during the creeping again, like, you know what? You shouldn't have done that. That was really stupid. And so then this inner critical part comes up and you're just thinking again and again, well, if I had only, like, if I could have gone back and done this and this, things would have changed or what's going to happen too? Like, can I go forward if, okay, because I made that mistake and just not being able to let that one small, whatever it might be, mistake, and it could be a big mistake too, but something that you really can't control or change, but that you just can't let it go. And it's just thinking forwards, thinking backwards, thinking, you know, how might have, if only I had X, Y, or Z, you know, done that differently. I think one of the big differences, as I'm understanding the, the difference between rumination and processing, mm-hmm. is that processing, it's kind of like a spiral. It moves you somewhere. Yes. And right. rumination, it's a circle where you stay stuck and you don't go anywhere. You just stay in this loop. Exactly. It's like, okay, well, I've thought of that solution. So maybe here's another one and here's another one. And it just keeps you like you're not going anywhere. You're yeah. just, yeah, yeah. You just, stay stuck. You stay stuck. Exactly. Stay stuck. Yeah. And I see this all the time in my practice. I see people who there is a particular issue that's coming up in their lives and they're in that loop. They stay in that place and they can't see their way out of it. It's like the difference between the forest and the trees. You're in that one frame and that's all you got. Yeah. And it can be, well, I mean, it can disrupt sleep. It can disrupt digestion because you're constantly feeling under threat, under as if there's this terrible thing that's happened. And often there's very little you can do about it. There's no control. There's no, you can't, you know, and sometimes it's even worrying about things that haven't even happened yet. This ruminating is like, well, you know, if I go to this party, like, you know, are people going to judge what I'm wearing or, you know, that sort of ruminating. And so it's as if you're at war with yourself. Yeah. And a lot of times that's what's happening. You know, I've been doing a lot of learning and working on, you know, sort of understanding parts work. And so like that hypercritical part of you, I think with ruminating is the part that shows up most loudly. You know, you're so, you know, if you had only and you're so whatever that just really wants to, in truth, kind of help you not make mistakes, but it can be very damaging too. It wants to help you not make mistakes, this part of you. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's like a runaway train. It's lost control and it has too much power. Yeah, it has too much power. It's too loud. It's too activated. Not feeling heard, you know, thinking that by yelling at you, it's helping. And yet, it can be very damaging and hurtful and keep you stuck. I'm just thinking, you know, we're talking about parts work. Mm Mm-hmm. Often when I think about parts work, I think about the little child, yes. right? Oh. And so if I'm thinking about that little child and I'm thinking about someone who's too loud, too activated, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who just, you know, isn't feeling heard, 
right? And yeah. so they keep getting bigger and bigger. Talk about the damage, right? Let's talk about it from that perspective, because often this is where that voice starts to run away, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so that child part who maybe through trauma or difficult life experiences or, you know, being emotionally neglected wasn't able to have a voice or was told their voice was wrong or invalid or whatever, that they should be seen and not heard, that child part wants to show up and be visible and yet has learned that's not safe too. So, yeah, so it's like... And when you're talking about safe, you're talking about like an emotional safety. Yes, absolutely. Just it's emotionally, whatever responses or reactions to their being loud or showing up or saying what they needed weren't Healing. They might be more rejected in that space yes. or yes. Yeah. that yes. they might say the things and want to be heard and it just falls short. Nobody picks it up. And so, yeah. yeah, yeah, nobody picks it up or they tell you you shouldn't be complaining or saying what you need or. Yeah. And so then that child part learns to sort of it's easier, but safer too to be invisible and not show up. Yeah. 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 And then you know, but it bubbles up, you know, you can't be silent forever. So it could be the child that's having a tantrum. And that's the one way they do get seen, you know, that they are screaming and yelling and kicking. Or, you know, the young adult who is rebelling against parents in ways that seem so self-destructive, you know, it's like, well, I can be seen in this, this arena, if I'm loud enough, but that's not necessarily healing either. And then they show up in your office as adults. Yes. Yes. And oftentimes replicating that same tantrum or rebelliousness or somewhere else in their lives. Mm-hmm. Or have swallowed that anger and frustration so deeply that they're just meeting everyone else's needs and not getting their own needs met at all. So still feeling invisible and not seen and unfulfilled and confused about why. Like here, I have this beautiful life. I'm married. I have a nice house. I have, you know, and I'm fortunate to have, well, I recognize that I have clients who do have come from privilege and are able to own a house, but they're questioning, why aren't I happier? Why don't I feel better about myself? Why do I still feel invisible? Something you said in there was, it felt really poignant to me. And I just want to reflect it back and maybe we can open it up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But you said that they swallow their anger and frustration and then they get busy meeting everybody else's needs and not attending to their own needs in any way. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, Reflecting on my own experience, but also the clients that I work with, I think for women, that that happens a lot because part of our role in our society as women has become, you know, we're caretakers, we're caregivers, we're moms, we're wives, you know, where we're constantly looking to help other people and their needs. And yet, if we've learn to be quiet, if we've learned to sort of swallow what we need, then we don't even know what we need some of the time. That It's hard to even speak our truth because it's so far buried below the surface. So far buried. And I'm thinking that part of the role of womanhood, as you're saying, as you're describing this, I'm thinking 
motherhood is infused with anxiety. Like it's supposed to be because mm-hmm. it is that anxiety that helps us attach to and care for the little ones who are unable to care for themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. So like there's something of that that's embedded in our DNA. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, we have to be worrying about, yeah, it's, it, Oh, why is my baby crying? And can I go, attend to their needs or did they need I should wake up and feed them right now. I should I check their diaper? Like where yeah. are they? Where'd they go? Should I chase after them? Like do I need to feed them? Like all of these little Yeah. Have they called me in the last four hours? And whose house are they? You know, depending on what stage of life they are. And exactly. even, even as a parent of kids who have launched, like when things happen, are they safe? Are they okay? You know, so there is still that anxiety around motherhood too. And when you don't hear from them, even then. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It's like programmed in everywhere that they kind of become a part of who you are, Mm -hmm. part of that fabric that makes you up, which also means that there's less energy to tend to you. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there is this sense of when you are taking care of yourself, I think for some women, like, well, this is selfish or, you know, I'm being self-centered like my needs shouldn't be the thing I consider first, which like what? <laughs> like, that, like you say it out loud and you're like, wait a minute, really? Like uh, maybe I do need to think about my own needs. Yeah. 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 But it's so this is a beautiful transition into how you do your work. And, you know, this message of helping women call a truce with their anxiety. How do you get there? I would say for many women, it is a slow learning awareness process or bringing an awareness to themselves because in a lot of ways we are kind of tuned out to what we need, but there's also this sense of either guilt or shame about making self a priority. So it takes time. And I think what has been incredibly healing for a lot of my clients is working toward a better understanding of all of their parts as in a compassionate, non-judgmental way, like their intentions of these parts are good, and yet they're not serving you right now. So it's sort of bringing an awareness to that wounded child, perhaps, or the part that wants to rage but doesn't have a voice, or that hypercritical part that just wants to throw the blame and shame on you to, you know, when you make a mistake. And so finding a more compassionate, empowered, genuine voice, I think is my hope and my path that I try to lead them into in therapy. So part one is finding that voice. Yes bringing the awareness to the, the fact that that voice even exists yes, and then finding that voice and finding some expression. I'm guessing that there's another part that comes next in terms of being able to tolerate or sit with that voice. Mm-hmm. I know that you infuse a lot of mindfulness in your work and I think this might be a piece of that ingredient that I'm seeing, but I'm guessing for a lot of women, once they start learning and sitting with that voice, there's a lot of judgment that comes in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Judgment and anxiety too, because the judgment brings the anxiety along with it. Like, but too, like, as you said, that sort of sitting with like owning, like, okay, when I'm showing up with my voice, when I am entering a room and saying what I need, 
it might make me really uncomfortable. And just bringing an awareness around that, like, this is going to be hard. Like, I'm not just going to be able to suddenly be like, oh, I am all that and I can tell everybody what I need. It's learning how to be uncomfortable and be okay and tolerate that discomfort too because that's part of it. But yes, the judgment piece, if the people in your life are used to you being a certain way where you're constantly meeting needs, like there's going to be shifts in relationships and maybe some pushback and that can be uncomfortable and can bring judgment like, oh, I shouldn't have, whatever, I shouldn't have said what I wanted or I shouldn't have put my foot down around this because if other people are telling you you shouldn't, it's hard not to listen to that too. Yeah. I find that there's also a practice that I start to infuse in my work at some point around discernment in regards to which voices are we listening to? Even the voices within ourselves, even the different parts of us, Mm -hmm. especially the external ones, which voices are we listening to and giving weight to? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, well, and the voices within ourselves too become stories of who we are. Like, you know, I... And I think you and I probably have talked about this with the piece that I wrote. Like, I grew up believing, like, well, I was a whiny, whiny kid. Like, that is my story. Like, I'm a complainer. Like, and I, (laughs) sitting back to that, looking at it, I'm like, no, I'm really not. Like, looking at that story in a bigger picture, it's like, I needed attention. And that was how I figured out how to get it. Yeah. You're referencing right now a blog post that you wrote that's on the Practice of Being Seen blog. We'll link to it in the show notes. But I just wanted to come back and give our audience a framework for the conversation that we're having there. Yes, that context of, yeah. And so, you know, recognizing, I think, for the women that I work with, that there are stories that they hold about themselves that other family members reinforce because it's a story that's been told. And as with internal family systems, you know, they're all parts of us, but like, do we have to believe that story? Is that story something that I have to own? Or can I say, maybe this is something that was told to me that I have latched onto and internalized? Yeah. And it's in that moment when you start noticing those stories and really seeing yourself. And this is much what you wrote about on that blog, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is entitled A Story of Survival and Healing, A Therapist's Mm -hmm. Journey into Seeing and Being Seen. So folks can find that on the Practice of Being Seen blog. But it's a beautiful very personal story that we sat with for quite a while when you were working on it. We did. Yeah. Around what you wanted to share and what was the real message in there. And I think much of the message is very much what we're talking about right now, about being a witness to yourself, Mm -hmm. being a witness to those stories that you share with yourself. Yeah. And recognizing that there are stories that you can share, even that might be painful or hard, but that you can share them in a way that's healing and helpful and be seen. And, you know, I think something that I find that my clients are really working on and I have worked on as well, but like being visible in the world in a way that you want to be seen as yourself, not as this story or not as this, you know, oh, he drinks too much or oh, she is the complainer or whatever. She's the one who's always like mad about everything. She's the bitch or whatever. Like, no, you're just you, right? Like you're not your story. And how can you show up that way that feels true and real and not too vulnerable, but vulnerable enough that it feels real and genuine? 
Yeah, I always like to think, and and I think I might have taken this from one of my past guests, Molly Merson, but Mm -hmm. I like to always think that my story is changeable and that how I present today is how I'm thinking today. But Mm -hmm. as I leave this conversation with you, I'm going to keep thinking and my thoughts might change and therefore I may change as well. So everything is really fluid and changeable and there's all this movement happening all the time, especially in who I am and what my identity is. Yeah, and that's really, really beautiful, especially for people like I'm thinking highly sensitive people going back to that, like who maybe take a little bit longer to process. Like in this moment, I might be feeling this way about whatever it is, but as I process and think about it, that might change and I might need to come back to that and address it in a different way. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. I love this idea that, I mean, our brains are plastic. Yeah. Not literally, but (laughs) in terms of. (laughs) Yeah, they can change. Yep. Yep. Which is so amazing because for so long we thought they couldn't, you know, that they were non-movable, non-changeable parts of us. But that's just not true, which is how mindfulness is so amazing. Going back to that, like mindfulness can literally create new neural pathways to help you respond in different ways and learn different ways of being. Talk to me more about mindfulness. I have my own sense of what mindfulness is. I know how I teach it, but I don't think I've actually had somebody on the podcast yet where we've really broken down what mindfulness is and the the practice of it. Yeah. To me, what mindfulness... So, I mean, John Kabat-Zinn says it's, you know, being present in the moment, non-judgmentally. Uh, he says it much better than I just did, but I... Have, non-judgmentally. Um, Yes, that's the key, non-judgmentally. Is I meant that for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With compassion. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's, yes, being more present, focused, being aware of what's happening in the moment. But for me, that awareness is about, okay, so what am I thinking? How am I feeling? What's happening in my body when I'm thinking and feeling these things? And What sensory stimuli are sort of creating this feelings, thoughts, emotions, physical sensations? So it's bringing a greater awareness to all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And as we become more aware of it, like we can choose what to focus our attention on or not. So that's important. Like, do I really want to be caught up in my head with this ruminating thought that's going over and over? Or can I tune into this person that's sitting in front of me, talking to me, and can I sit and pay attention and listen and be here and be present? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know how to be present or be here or what that looks, feels, stays, sounds like you know, how to experience being present. And perhaps that's because people weren't really present with them when they were growing up. But learning how to tolerate that presence is a big piece of the work. Well, and that's, I think, a gigantic piece of it is like that tolerating a sense of discomfort sometimes, you know, if things are happening that I'm not comfortable with, whether it's my environment or what's happening out in the world or whatever, or internally, like, that's okay. That's just a feeling, right? It's like, it doesn't define who I am, but it also, I don't have to focus on it to the point where like, oh my God, I don't feel good. I'm uncomfortable. 
there's this feeling in my stomach. I think I'm sick. I'm, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm just feeling this right way right now. And maybe that will change. Maybe it won't. But can I just be with that? Kind of like just noticing this feeling is the one that's present. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel comfortable. There's, there's an itch on the bottom of my foot that I can't get to. Right. Whatever that thing is, right? And just staying with it. Like, okay, it's there. Mm-hmm. Can I be here? Can I just stay with it? And I often like to say that sometimes it's these uncomfortable or these painful moments that actually help us stay engaged and stay present because they bring us back to the now. Like if my foot is itching, if there's that itch on the bottom of my foot that I can't get to, then as I pay attention to it, I'm brought back into my body. Mm -hmm. For sure. But two, it's like, well, could I just sit here and notice it too? Do I have to like scratch it for 10 minutes? Can I just say, oh, my foot is itchy and... Okay, there it is. But it does, yes. Bringing you back into your body, paying attention to your body, I think often is that first clue to anxiety is, you know, what's happening internally. And we can be so tuned out to our what is happening physically that as we start to pay attention, you know, our signs, I can tell you most of my clients, if I'm saying, all right, when you're beginning to feel anxious, where is that? And they'll be like, oh, it's in my stomach, you know? So they're recognizing if I'm asking them, but in the moment, they're just like, oh God, my stomach hurts. And then the anxiety goes, bing. So I used to be somebody who was plagued with a lot of anxiety. Hmm. If you ask my husband, still show up from time to time. But (laughs) (laughs) I think I have a much better handle on it these days. I remember the moment where I realized, oh, it's the hair on the back of my neck. Hmm. And just being able to clue into something in a very physical way like that mm-hmm. gave me a lot of power over the anxiety where it let me regain control. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that awareness that your body, like I kind of like to frame it like, well, your body is just trying to tell you that there's something that's happening that you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And it's like that first responder. It's like saying, hello, hello. Like we need to, you know, you need to address whatever this is. And if it's like you're not speaking your voice or this situation doesn't feel comfortable or whatever it might be, like tuning into where your body is to be able to recognize for people who have chronic anxiety, like, is this a situation that I need to be feeling anxious about? That's like one part of it. It's the beginning of a conversation with yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, there's this thing that I'm tuning into now. Mm-hmm. And my body is helping me tune into it. It's helping me realize that I'm uncomfortable, that there's this discomfort, this dis-ease that's happening within or around me. Mm-hmm. And there's something for me to, in that noticing, there's also perhaps something for me to do, something yes. where I get to take some control and, and have a voice. Mm-hmm. How do I want to use that? What do I want to do with it? Absolutely. And being able to recognize, like, so if I'm being triggered in this moment, like for people, especially people who have, you know, childhood trauma or were emotionally neglected as kids, like, is this something in the here and now, like, is my reaction to this stimulus, whatever it is, whether it's the, you know, sound of a car or somebody's voice or just being in a room that feels weirdly uncomfortable and you don't know why, like, does that reaction meet 
whatever the reality is. Like, so am I really in a safe place? Am I sitting at home in my comfy little couch? And I can't identify anything that's really triggering or dangerous or scary. And so maybe this is something from then. And like, that was then, but here I am in the now. And how can I respond to it now with compassion and a healing voice that maybe can help calm that part of me that's feeling a little scared. And without mindfulness, it's so hard to, I think, to tune in to those internal signals because we are so used to tuning out, you know, and distracting and dissociating, dissociating, trying to not feel, you know, whether it's through being on our phones or sucked into a TV show or whatever it is, or, you know, cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. Like, it's like, I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. Overworking. Yes. Using substances. Yes. All Working out to a, you know. Yes. Um, to a punishing degree almost. Yeah. Yeah. Overeating or not eating or gambling. There's so many ways to tune out. And, and I think this is where there's an overlap. To addictions. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. There is. And and not just substance. I mean, even I'm thinking like codependence, you know. Mm-hmm. There's relational kinds of ways that we can even use relationships in a way that yeah. tune us out from ourselves. Yeah. Because if I'm constantly engaging and again, like meeting someone else's needs or trying to make everybody else happy, then I don't really have to think about what's me. making me happy. Mm. Yeah, or unhappy. When you were talking about all of this before, you were saying that this is a really slow awareness process. Yes. And, you know, as we're talking about mindfulness being a key to unlocking our ability to reconnect with ourselves Mm -hmm. and to that voice and to that place of calm non-judgment, I just want to come back to the fact that this is a slow process, that mindfulness is not something we sit down with an app and we understand in about five or 10 minutes. No, absolutely not. You know, that's what I reinforce. So I have a women's group that is, you know, basically supporting women with anxiety through mindfulness. And, you know, I keep highlighting this is a practice and they call it a practice because you have to practice. It doesn't just come in 10 minutes. And I think Robert Cox, who you spoke, you just recently released an episode with him. But as did you, I did too. And so he was saying, you know, and the guy says, yeah, I tried to meditate once this week and it didn't really do anything for me. And he says, yeah, well, I went to the gym once and I'm still, I haven't lost any weight. Like, you know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This takes time. It takes practice. It takes intention. And it takes a devotion to yourself. Yes, it does. It, and I would say to self and to the universe. Like, so if you are able to connect more deeply with yourself with compassion. It's so much easier to be compassionate towards others, like to choose to see things without judgment in general. So not just yourself, but other people too. And often it's way easier to see other people without judgment than without judging yourself. But I think it encompasses not just self, but the universe. Yeah. And I don't remember where I heard this recently, but somebody was talking about the practice of self-love and they were saying how it's really hard to learn how to love yourself without learning also how to love others. Like without it happening, you have to be doing both. 
Yeah, yeah, you really do. Because, you know, we're so hardwired to connect with other people. But, you know, it's almost a reciprocal process. Because if we're not connecting with self, it's really hard to connect with other people because you don't know how you're feeling or you're constantly thinking about what they're feeling and they're going, all right, yeah, I don't know you at all. You know what I mean? And in my relational work, I can really speak to that. I bet. There tends to be a more latent partner and there tends to be a more blatant partner. Mm. And when we look at relationships in kind of that way, it's the person whose voice is not being asserted, the more latent person. We need to bring their voice into the room mm-hmm. and because otherwise their needs will never be met. Yeah. They, they will never be met. And that's where all the disconnection happens. Yeah, it does. And I think for, you know, I know for my clients who really work hard to meet the needs of others and their families and maybe the relationships aren't healthy, whether it's a parent or a sibling or a partner, like the resentment that bubbles up around constantly meeting the needs of others, like nobody wants to recognize that or it's so hard to bring that into the room because then they feel bad. Like, well, I hate them for asking me to do this again, but I agreed anyway. And the toxicity that lives underneath and behind that resentment, mm-hmm. it contaminates the relationship. Even though you're doing things for others, the way it ends up being received yes, happen, it doesn't feel as good as if you just said no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a hard concept to advocate for because the idea of saying no is like, well, they're going to hate me. They're going to be mad at me if I, or, you know, they're going to judge me if I don't go to this event that I really don't want to go to. But then what is that saying about you? Like you're showing up in a way that's not true and genuine. You don't want to be there or you don't want to be doing this thing. And yet here you are and saying yes and hating it (laughs) again, (laughs) again. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's the again and the again and the again that builds up over time and it creates a new story that isn't actually a very healthy story for you or for the people who you're quote unquote caring for or taking care of or giving something of yourself to or letting Mm -hmm. go of your own needs for it doesn't actually take care of anyone. No, no. But I think you know, where the compassion piece can come in to that is that like, you know, having compassion for, well, for yourself, this is a way I've always done this, but I'm recognizing now I need to do things differently and that's okay. But I'm also recognizing that this might be really hard and difficult and that the people in my life might not be used to me being this way and they might be a little angry, but that's okay too because they're not used to this either. Yeah. It brings me right back to that, you know, air mask on the airplane. Mm-hmm. You've got to put on yours before you can put on anybody else's. You can't yes. take care of others if you have no oxygen to breathe. No, and it's so, you know, it's such a great metaphor for this because it brings it right home. It's true. Like, how are you going to give yourself or even be alive if you're not breathing your own air? Mm-hmm. Yeah, And this is why sitting with yourself, sitting with that anxiety, sitting with these ruminating thoughts and noticing the message that they're trying to communicate, because that's what they are. Mm -hmm. They're trying to communicate a message that you're missing. Yeah, yeah. And whether it's, you know, you're not showing up or, you know, part of you is really angry that you're not showing up, you know, whatever that ruminating thought is. And yeah, it's like, 
your body, your brain, your being is trying to bring across a message. And sometimes that message is like, if I could just control everything, then I'd be okay. I mean, then that's that very managerial part of you that's just like, if I can just have this all figured out and the ruminating is like, okay, well, there might be this, but then there also might be this and there might be this and I could have done it this way or I might be able to do it this way. Like that, it's exhausting. Like, I can't tell you how many clients are like, I'm just, by the end of the day, I'm exhausted. I'm like, no wonder you're working overtime. Like, you're trying to figure out the whole world and keep everyone and everything under control. And like, how likely is that going to be to actually happen? Like, can you control everything? No. No. Yeah. You really can't. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to recognize that it's okay that things and that not being in control might make you uncomfortable. And that's okay too. That it's okay to be uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It feels to me like this recipe for humanity is to be uncomfortable, to sit with the things that make you uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. to do a lot of noticing, but also to carve out a lot of white space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I just read Brene Brown and her newest book, Braving the Wilderness, like She was talking about how our society, just with social media, but also just the way we are, like we're constantly creating these or moving towards people who are like-minded in thoughts, feelings, the way we look, our culture, and where you would think the research would show this would lead us to feel more connected, and yet we're lonelier than we've ever been as a society. Like individuals are more lonely than they've ever been. But I think part of that is like, the discomfort around people we don't know, it can help us connect. Like we're learning if we can bring compassion into that too. Like we're learning that we can connect to people who maybe aren't exactly like us in looks or culture or even just how we feel about the president today. Like I can still be connected to you on some other level. Like it doesn't have to be black or white. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And I think it also, it connects back to just the fact that sometimes when we're with people who are quote unquote like us, Mm -hmm. we're unable to see ourselves. We're unable to see our differences because we're looking to fit in. We're looking to belong, which is a big piece of what Brene's book is about. And it's when we let go of that need to belong that we can actually find ourselves. Well, and two, if we're all, if everyone in this, my group of people is thinking and saying the same things, then how could I possibly show up and say something different? How could I possibly show up and be myself if maybe I'm not thinking those same things? It would take so much freaking courage to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think this is another Brene quote that, you know, courage really begins with the act of seeing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so true. So true. Because that can be really kind of scary, especially if you've had some trauma or... Or just not had practice. Or not had practice. Yeah. 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 You know, any of the above. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just being able to be okay with the imperfectness of us is huge and takes courage. Yeah. It's quite a journey. And it's it's a very brave journey. Yeah, it is very brave. And, you know, I think that's something that I try to reaffirm in sessions with clients, you know, when they do come and 
really begin this very deep exploration of self is like, this is so brave and it's so hard. And I appreciate you being here doing the work, you know, and I'm here with you doing this, you know, with you. I love it. Yeah. And I get it. Like, oh, I so get it. Is thank you for this conversation and for bringing your work into the world. And I am so excited that your podcast has officially launched and then people can also find you over there on any podcast app at Woman Warriors. Yes. It's Warriors. a W-O. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know. It's like you have to practice saying yeah. it. <laughs> but yes, womanwarriors.com. Yeah. iTunes. It's out there. It's, it's out there everywhere. So Yeah. Thanks. I have so enjoyed this conversation and look forward to having more with you, whether it's on my podcast or face-to-face sometime in the near future. I look forward to that as well. Thank you again, Biz. Thank you. We're still accepting enrollment in our Wild Women discussion groups. They meet online the last Thursday of the month through September 2018. We're journeying together and remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. Go to practiceofbeingseen.com slash events to learn more. And if you want to learn more about my relationship therapy practice or intensive couples retreat experiences in New York, go to connectfulness.com. If you're an instigator of change who wants to dive even deeper into connecting with all of your parts, then there's a link to click in our show notes to learn more about working with me. And... Our integrative mastermind is designed for therapists and healers to help you release blockages, cultivate your vision, and tend to yourself and the relationships that support you. Our focus is on integrating your professional and personal parts in full support of your thriving in all aspects of your life, relationships, and livelihood. All of these layers of you play together to either elevate you to the next level or hold you stuck in a loop of overwhelm and inaction. Learn more about the mastermind over at practiceofbeingseen.com slash mastermind. We'd love for you to join our community on Facebook or find us on social media at Popscast. I always love hearing from you, so please do keep sending me those messages at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show, and you'll join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>